Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working and non-working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And as a reminder to those of you who are new, Act 2 is a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter, of which this podcast is just one of the things that we do. So thank you for joining us here. Give us a rating. <laughs> Write a comment. Tell us the weirdest thing maybe that an exec has said to you after you pitched. You can do that at act2writers at gmail.com, all spelled out, or on our Instagram and Twitter at act2writers. Um, this week in Act 2, we did something called Idea Creation Night, which is something pre-pandemic we would do every six months. Everyone seemed to love it, so much so that after this time, people were like, why are we only doing it every six months? Let's do it more often. And it came about as a way, A, an excuse to get writers together and having fun, um, but B, as a way to somehow make that productive, right? To like come up with spec ideas, to brainstorm together, but also eat food, drink some stuff, and, and have some laughs along the way. So Idea Creation Night is we all sit around a table for the first 10 minutes. We do a writing prompt, and we're open to reading it afterwards if you'd like to. This time, everyone got a different writing prompt, so that was fun. And then after that 10-minute writing prompt, we play a game. Mm. And oftentimes, it's the same game, but sometimes we switch it up to try to like just fit more interesting games in there. But the games are always writing centric. So the game that we usually play is called Pitch Storm, which mm. was created by Robert Kirkman's company, Skybound. And it is a really stressful game, <laughs> um, especially if you're an introvert, but it's so helpful as a writer and so funny. We're always dying laughing, where basically you pick a character card and you pick a plot card. And they're completely random things that absolutely should not go together. And then someone in the group plays the executive and they get notes cards. And on, on the notes cards are things like, that's great, we love that, but we were thinking that maybe your main character should be an Elvis hologram. <laughs> and now you have to pivot whatever pitch you were doing based on this character and this crazy plot that you were given um, and try to add Elvis as a hologram as your main character. And it's just all of these crazy, uh, what feel like very real world, <laughs> real life note options. Um, like, you know, we, we've been noticing that puppies are really tracking for our audiences. Can we make this a dog movie instead? I like that. like that. So that's what we were doing. And that's why <laughs> Tell Us the Weirdest Thing an Exec Has Said to You really came up for me because we started then sharing stories afterwards of like, man, the, the notes I've gotten after a pitch have been really, really crazy. And that was a really long tangent. <laughs> no, that was great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things we are going to do with our Patreon is to throw a little idea creation night in there for everyone. All right. You know... I was going to go right into this week in writing, but I realized we haven't done a spec check in quite a while. Oh, yeah. Spec check. Spec check. That's right. Well, Tasha, my, my progress hasn't been great. I'm writing two different things right now. Oh, so you've entered a new spec into the mix. It's always kind of been there, but so I was struggling so much on my one spec mm -hmm. that I was like, you know what? Let me just get this one idea out. And I was in the flow. I was, I happened to go on a ride along, which is a story for another day. Mm -hmm. I, I happened to be in this mindset that I needed to get this other idea that's kind of been brewing in my head for quite some time, just onto paper, 
or onto like screen. A, like a police-themed idea. There's some police, yes. Okay, got it. And so I, I wrote that out. I actually have the outline that I was actually thinking of sending to you guys. There's, there's just a lot of holes in it. But so there's that. I started to kind of work on that, but at the same time working on my other spec, and I'm somewhere in Act 2. Okay. So you've progressed since we last saw it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've just been yeah. slowly churning. My headspace has not been great. I've been trying to get in the right headspace, but I don't know, these last couple months, I thought, you know, when, you, like the, when everything was like going to shit, you're like, you know, I'm just going to jam out a couple scripts. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden you get all depressed and, <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> What's the point? Mm. We're never going to have movies again anyways. No. They're Wh- never going to hire real people anyways. And why am I doing this? Aliens are here. So what does any of this matter? Yeah. Now we have aliens. <laughs> We've got AI aliens maybe. Who knows? But um, yeah. anyway, so that's where I'm at with my spec. Slowly churning away. Okay. I feel like I'm in the same miasma. I got notes from my manager, which I mentioned. And I was, if you recall from the last spec check, was very excited by her notes. I thought that they were giving me everything that I needed to go in the right direction. But then when I sat down to write it, what I thought was just going to be some fixes in Act 2, the scenes that I added for the act two scenes were really good and I really liked them, but then it completely changed everything else around it in an unexpected way because I liked those scenes so much that the movie then became more about that than about what I was doing outside of it. Mm. And I was like, well, shit, now this script is about like five different things instead of one. And it's so confusing and I've lost track of why I loved it. That was the thing that was worrying me the most. And that tends to happen actually when I get notes from my manager because she introduces, I mean, her brain thinks totally differently. Even then us writers, when you go to writer's group, I feel like our brains are very similar because we're all writers and she's not. Her brain thinks just very differently. And so suddenly I'm thinking about the movie differently and I often lose track of like, the thing that inspired me the most about this. So I found that that was the case. And so what I did was I, I did finish the outline. I inserted the new act two stuff that I thought was going to solve everything, but actually made it more complicated. And I sent it to her and I said, this is terrible. I've lost track of what I love. We need to sit down and just have a Zoom call or a meeting and go through it scene by scene for like an hour or two because I need help. And so that's what we did, and it was Mm. great. And she's very good when I have this problem about being like, okay, let's go back to what you love. What do you love? Okay, let's talk about why that's missing. Rather than trying to force me in a direction, we went back to basics, basically, which I really appreciated. And so I am in the process of revising my outline, which is now totally different. I actually, when I texted, I texted Josh and Dave, friend of the podcast, that what if I took all of this actual B story villain stuff that you've already read out and made it not that? <laughs> and you guys were like, okay, that's much simpler. Yeah. Um, so when I texted you that though, I'm like halfway through my outline. I'm in, I'm into the, well, I'm into the break in tact two in my outline. And I had this revelation that I needed to basically take out the mother daughter story that I'm working on and just make it a woman without a kid <laughs> because yeah. that was clouding up what I wanted to do. 
And so that's where I am. I have to go back through this through the first act and change it and get rid of the daughter and get back on track. So I feel behind because I told you guys that I would be submitting it on Sunday. And today is a Friday that we are recording. So I got mm. some shit to do this weekend to get it to you on time. That's where I am. I love that. Writing's hard. It is hard. I was You and I had done a brainstorm together, which... Well, yes. And, and um, for an idea that we're working on. And at the end of it, I was saying to you, I was like, wow, it's really easy to do this when you're with another person and you're yeah. just bouncing ideas. You forget how hard it is when you're by yourself. Yeah. And you're stuck. Like we were talking about, you, you can, when you're brainstorming something, you're like a day, you're thinking about like one relationship that could be solved in five minutes in a conversation with someone who's kind of on the same page. A hundred percent. Yeah. I feel that way now. And when I texted you guys and the reason why I did was because I was feeling that exact thing. I was like, it would be so easy if I was just on a Zoom with Josh or Dave and I could just talk through these things and maybe we like shared, you know, the same, we, we work on Melanote, Josh, where we can both see the sort of the structure all at the same time. Cause like, it's basically note cards yeah. in this, in this app. I'm like, that would just help me so much right now. And I didn't have it really, but I always love that I can text you guys these questions and yeah, you'll answer. Always. But yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I'm in like the sad part of writing right now. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> because I also, like you, I was like, I feel like I should be, have been done by now. We're, oh, like, yeah. We started this strike in on May 1st, and I should be done by now. I had intended to, because I have a goal buddy who we, like, planned out what when my spec should be done. He's like, you should probably be done with your act two by the end of July. I'm not. I'm still in my outline. <laughs> Listen, these are the unforeseen circumstances of, like, first of all, you're busy, number one, just with other stuff. But also... Mm -hmm. The world's in a really weird place. And I feel like sometimes we take that for granted because a lot of times we're like, okay, I'm just gonna write a spec. And then you forget like, there's circumstances happening around you that just come and knock your brain out of spec mode or yeah. writing mode. And if you don't have some very defined work schedule, it is so hard to get things done when crazy things are happening around you. This is a good point. I need to go back to the David H. Steinberg yeah. writing schedule. The other day, I was sitting down to write, and then that dude came out and was like, we've got aliens, and my day was shot. I was like, wait, <laughs> what? And I was just texting you all day like, there's aliens. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And I went down a really dark rabbit hole, and um, anyway. And that was at least a day and a half worth oh, of writing sure. gone. <laughs> for, definitely. I was messaging you about it last night. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so... No one is taking this seriously, by the way. <laughs> none of my friends, I told you, none of my friends over text. And then, like, I was talking to a bunch of writers, and they were like, oh, ha, ha, ha. I'm like, no, we're, we're going to die, guys. They're <laughs> like, are we, though? <laughs> yes! Well, listen, the last thing I'll say about this is I have a friend who is skeptical of the guy. Gersh? What was his name? Grouch? Yeah. Uh, he was a little skeptical about his testimony. Okay. So... I, there's reason to be skeptical, but I, anyway, anyway, moving on <laughs> screenwriting podcast. I have a this week in writing. Do you, are you okay if I get into it or would you rather I save it for next time? I'm Hey, this is, this is the podcast. You do what okay. you got to do. Okay. This, this week, week in writing. writing. This week in writing. <gasps> 
<laughs> All right. So Quentin Tarantino gave an interview that Screenwriting in LA reposted on Instagram, which I sent you a while ago. And I said, this would be perfect to talk about because he, in that podcast interview, talks about an experience he had while casting Pulp Fiction, where the studio exec told him to cast a specific actor. And Quentin said no. <laughs> and then the exec said, okay, here's a list of top actors that please, like, if you could just hire one of these guys. Because according to all of their number crunching, this list would hedge their bets that the movie would make a certain amount of money back. For example, a studio will know, more so even now than in Pulp Fiction's time because of AI and algorithms and all of that stuff, that, hey, if you put you know, Johnny Depp in a movie and send it overseas, you will likely get this much money back in France and this much money back in India because these people, these, this amount of people will probably go see a Johnny Depp movie. For sure. Because studios are crunching these numbers, it is their job to know that, right? So regardless of if it is the right creative choice, they're thinking about their money back. And then when Tarantino asked this exec why he's being so insistent on these specific names, because none of them he thought were right for the role, the exec said, well, because it would make me feel better. So I wanted to talk about what that actually means, and specifically from a writing perspective rather than like a casting perspective. So. Let's say that Josh is a studio exec and I come to him with a script and he loves it. He can see this as a movie. He can see this being something the studio would make money back on, but the script needs a rewrite before it's production ready. Now, he could of course hire Tasha to do the rewrite, but Tasha's a big fat nobody. Can she actually do the job? Josh absolutely thinks she can, but it is a harder conversation for Josh to go to his boss and say, hey, read this big time travel action movie. I think it would be amazing. Mm. I'd love to hire this writer that you've never heard of, who has no credits you've ever heard of, to do a rewrite on it. Now, the reason that's a risk for Josh is because if I don't deliver, he's in huge trouble for taking a chance on this nobody. And guess what? He has no idea if I will deliver. Like, yes, maybe I turned in this amazing spec script. Clearly, I have talent as a writer. That's undeniable. He loves it. But how long did it take me to write this script? Five years? Two years? One year? If he hires me to rewrite this, I've got six weeks to do it. Can I execute at the same level in that amount of time? Or is it going to take me five years, two years, one year to do this revision? He doesn't know because I'm untested. Also, he has no idea if I'm the kind of writer who can maybe write a killer spec script but I can't take a no worth shit. Maybe I'm defensive. Maybe I take all your notes. Maybe I take them too literally. And suddenly when I return in my revised draft that you've convinced your boss to pay for, the script is actually worse, which is an exec's worst nightmare and which actually happens all the time. Mm. Because now the exec has to explain why the script is worse. They have to, Josh has to go admit that he fucked up on hiring me, this no-name writer, and then still somehow convince his boss to keep paying for rewrites because this movie's worth it. This movie's worth it. This got fucked up, but let's just go back to the first draft and we'll start all over. We'll just pay more money. That money was wasted that we did. It's forget about it. We threw it in the trash. Um, now I think let's take that same scenario, but instead Josh tells me to take a hike right from the start. Sorry, we love your spec script, Tasha, but it needs a revision and we're going to hire someone else to do it. 
I go home to my friends, I go to writer's group, and I say, man, the studio system is so fucked up. Don't they know I could kill this? But then what Josh does is he puts a list of writer names in front of his boss that they will be impressed by. And this writer's list will include writers with very big, impressive credits, definitely movies that have performed well, um, evidence that they can get the job done, right? Now, any of these impressive writers are going to be so much more money (laughs) than I was. Just by the very nature of them having more credits, being more impressive, their quote is just much higher than mine. But if Josh hires... Christopher Nolan to do a rewrite on his script. Obviously, Nolan doesn't do rewrites. He does his own stuff. But just as an example, if he hires Christopher Nolan to rewrite this time travel action movie and pays him a few million dollars to do it, and the script now comes back worse because Nolan fucked it up, which happens, guess who's not going to be blamed for that now? Me. Josh. (laughs) Because Josh hired one of the best writers in the business. He can't possibly get blamed for that. Anyone would have hired Chris Nolan. It's it's just a fluke that it came back worse, right? right? So what will then happen is, oh, well, let's try another A-list writer instead. And this is where you start to see the circus continuing. And like when I was on my desk at Universal, you just see money being spent like crazy. And as someone who is making like minimum wage and you're seeing these scripts come back and they're not good... They're worse. They take a step back, and they're but it costs millions of dollars. You become horrified. You become disillusioned with the process because if they just picked me, (laughs) who sits at this desk, then it would be fine. But that's what it means by like I would feel better by it because it feels it's a business decision. It feels like well, if I make a mistake, it's not my fault in that scenario. And I think that story is important for two kind of main reasons. I think obviously at first it illustrates how the people who hire us think. But second, it shows just how much risk I think is part of our business and maybe in a good way. Like if Josh really believed in me as a writer, I think he should try to risk for me. He should try and say, hey, let's have Tasha do this rewrite. I think she could kill it. And that's a risk to him. But sometimes you discover a new writer that you never would have before. And anyways, that's that was I thought that was an interesting story because it's something I talk a lot about and that I hear a lot about and kind of confront and 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 that inspired me. I love that. That was probably okay. the best this week in writing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> this business is crazy. You're absolutely right. I wish people took more chances. Actually, as you were saying that, I was thinking like the importance of writing a spec script because it's so hard to break in and get your name on those lists that a lot if you write like two or three things and then all of a sudden you become, oh, that's that person who was on the blacklist and they wrote this script and it sold over here and this happened and this happened and I don't know it's tough yeah you have so much more control of getting your foot in the door that way for sure my this week in writing is not nearly as great but it's going to be a perfect segue into our bigger topic amazing take us there okay Tasha Uh oh I've got a list and you have to tell me what the best title is oh god okay (laughs) are you ready yeah. Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible 2. Mission Impossible 3. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Mission Impossible Fallout. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. What is the best Mission Impossible title? Ghost Protocol. Okay. 
because I don't know what that means and it sounds really cool, which makes me want to know more. It's the J.J. Abrams thing. It raises a question that I want to know more. Dead Reckoning is a close second because I also don't know what that means, but it sounds dangerous. What but about Fallout Rogue Nation? It's like, mm, Rogue Nation just tells me it's a rogue nation. So if I'm interested in, in that being the villain, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This has been on my mind for weeks and I've been meaning to message you. And then I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to bring it up on the podcast. I love that this has been tormenting you. <laughs> what do you think is the best title? I do like Ghost Protocol. But it's hard because I think Fallout's my favorite Mission Impossible. I was going to say Fallout is the worst title. Oh, but it's your favorite movie. Yeah, exactly. So Okay. So I want to like the title more because I like the movie so much. Yeah. Anyway, that's all. I just wanted to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> Equally valid this week in writing. <laughs> yeah, we went from one thing to the other. <laughs> But it is a good segue into yeah. talking about summer movies. As you said, Josh, we're kind of, before the podcast, you said we're kind of at the midpoint of the summer movies. We, we did an episode at the beginning of the summer about what blockbusters were coming out that we were really excited to see. And now is kind of the midpoint check-in. So we thought yeah. we would do that and see where we are. But also, Barbenheimer happened. And yeah. it's, this was something we absolutely positively had to talk about because we've both both seen Barbie and we're going to get into some Barbie spoilers and yeah. I have not seen Oppenheimer yet because of some faults of my own um, <laughs> Josh but, doesn't know how to tell days <laughs> but but um uh so I I haven't seen Oppenheimer but uh we have to talk about Barbie we have to because I feel we we've to. entered cultural phenomenon territory and this is absolutely this doesn't happen in movies that often no no, it was totally unpredictable. When we, if I recall, when we first did our blockbuster episode, we definitely like lingered on this, on the weekend that Barbie came out, the July 12th weekend, because yeah. it was like, holy shit, Mission Impossible comes out on that like Wednesday. And then Barbie and Oppenheimer come out that weekend. And we were like, what crazy, what a crazy lineup, A, but yeah. B, to have those two movies, Oppenheimer and Barbie go together, go up against each other is nuts. And... I think we kind of talked about like, oh, how crazy it would be to do a double feature of that. Sure. <laughs> it's like so crazy. It's so, uh, the, the juxtaposition of those two things is obviously so extreme. And then it became this huge phenomenon. Um, obviously, we all know we don't have to really get into it. But my experience of going to see Barbie was unlike anything I think I've experienced in a really long time. Like, I literally don't think the same excitement has existed since like high, when I was in high school and the new Star Wars was coming out. Oh, The and Phantom Menace? Yeah, before like that movie sucked, people were so thrilled and excited wow. by that. People were dressing up and going to the theaters. We were lining up outside the theater to get our tickets because at the time you didn't do yeah. reservations. Um, we, were skip we skipped school, which I never skipped school. I could be bleeding and throwing up at the same time and my mom would still make me go to school. <laughs> I actually don't know if she knows I skipped school, but I did <laughs> to go see this movie. And... Yeah, whenever we went to, I went to dinner on um, the weekend, the, I think it was like the, the Saturday that it came out. So it had already been out a day. And in the restaurant I was in, it was in this kind of center. We have a lot of these in Los Angeles that include all kinds of stores and restaurants as well as a movie theater. And everyone 
as far as the eye could see, was in pink. Men mm-hmm. and women, it didn't matter. The restaurant was absolutely packed with people in pink. And the waitress was saying, yeah, we've been so busy because of Barbenheimer. And they even had like a pink drink that they were just selling like hotcakes because it wasn't Barbie themed, but they would say that it was when they were, you know, the waiter was pitching it at the table. Yeah. And, and it really, it was like one of those moments where, especially in the midst of a strike, it just was a reflection of how important our business is for the economy in general. Yeah. And we got to, how we got to get back to the table because this is important. And just the excitement is why we make movies and this hasn't existed in so long. And I'll stop talking now. It was just so cool to see. And I want to know what you, we're going to talk about what you thought about it, but I also had a similar, I went to the century city mall, which was the perfect place to see it because century city is referenced multiple times in the movie. Yeah. And yeah, everyone was wearing pink. And I saw this group of women, actually, excuse me, this group of like younger girls walk past a group of older women, both in pink. The younger girls looked at the older women and said, hi, Barbie. And oh my God. And um, the, <laughs> older, the older women just kind of laughed because it was kind of cute. I mean, this, these were like younger, younger girls. And it was like yeah. this adorable interaction that happened. And I was like, oh my God. And yeah, so it was awesome. It was it was a crazy thing. Everyone was just embracing freaking Barbie. Yeah, it was it was an event. You and movies haven't been an event in a really long time. So someone said to me because I was this woman said asked me if I liked Barbie, and I was like, yeah, I liked it, and I've got some thoughts. And and her take was that, and she hadn't even seen the movie, but she mm-hmm. said. The thing that I love most about this movie is that it's bringing positivity into the world. And mm. I was like, oh, you're right. This does have like a very positive, I mean, I know there's Just like some joyful. backlash. It's very joyful, but everyone's yeah. about it and happy and yeah. seeing it. And that's the love and joy of movies. That's yeah. all. Oh my God, kills me. All right, what'd you think of Barbie? Spoilers. So spoilers. I definitely, we did, we did it wrong. We did Barbie and then Oppenheimer. We did the double feature thing. Yeah. A, because I just miss doing double features from when I was a kid and would do them all the time. Um, but we did Oppenheimer last because that's just what, what the world offered us. It, Oppenheimer has been sold out <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so like the only times available were this later time. And I was nervous about that, and rightly so, because we watched Barbie and we're like on a high. We're eating lunch sure. and we're just talking about it. This joke made us laugh. This is a quote that I'll remember forever. And this is where I had problems. Like we were just engaged with the story. And we did have problems with the, the story itself, just from like a very literal writing level. But it's one of those movies where I don't give a fuck yeah. because it was so fun to watch that it didn't bother me. Okay. Um, but then we see Oppenheimer at 2.30. We get out in the evening and our drive home is just silent. <laughs> we're just, we're not engaging each other. Our heads are like low. <laughs> it's just <laughs> not a good way to end our day. Uh, but also enjoyed Oppenheimer. I, I sort of, I'm not a big fan of World War one onward history just because it depresses me and this movie was depressing but beautifully shot beautifully told incredibly well acted all the things okay yeah you definitely went the wrong way even tom cruise said you had to do oppenheimer first and then barbie Greta said it too it's just the world didn't allow it no so i think it sounded like i didn't like barbie it did but i did like barbie good i thought gosling was ironically i thought gosling was the best part 
He's amazing. A Barbie, which is <laughs> so kind, good. Kind of funny given the, the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. I think for all the problems, like weird, like nitpicky things, it doesn't matter because it was a fun experience. Yeah. I feel like we've talked about this recently, right? This idea that if you love something, the nitty gritty of it doesn't matter. Oh, we were talking about Mission Impossible. I don't mm. remember if it was on the podcast or just separately, but we are talking about Mission Impossible and how the actual plot of it is extremely confusing. Like I got lost several times about who's the buyer? What are we doing in this location? And I got over the confusion very quickly because I didn't care mm -hmm. because all I knew was that Ethan cared about it. And I was able to track what Ethan cared about in every scene enough to pull me through emotionally to everything. So like the, the logistics of stuff mattered very little. And I had a recent experience on my own show where I've been struggling a lot with this episode because it's all, it's like an information, information dump episode. And I've actually had to rewrite it after getting animatics back, which is never a good thing in order to make it clearer and to like thin out the exposition and then got the new animatic bat after that. And the exposition is still kind of confusing just because mm -hmm. it's a lot of information, but now they've, we've adjusted the emotions and now I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> like if you rewatch it, you'll probably get all of the information the second time, but you're going to be emotionally pulled through the episode so well that I don't think you're going to care that you miss some of the little stuff. And that was a huge lesson for me as a writer. Wow. So yeah, if your main character cares so much, it makes you care. Yeah. And you, and if what they care about is clear, if yeah. their emotional journey in every scene is clear and their want in every scene is clear, then you're good. You, the, art, the audience doesn't technically need to know what the MacGuffin is, which is why it's a MacGuffin. It's the thing that doesn't matter, but everyone's going after it, right? God, I love MacGuffins. Yeah. Which also, right. by the way, what's so crazy about Barbenheimer, what we talked about is that it totally kind of washed away Mission Impossible. Yes. Which is even hard for me to wrap my head around. I know. And it's upsetting to both of us because we want nothing but this movie franchise to succeed exceptionally so that yes. it can continue on forever. Yes. And I really liked Mission Impossible. Me too. Yeah, the as of this podcast, Barbie has made $528 million globally. Oppenheimer has made $265 million globally. And Mission Impossible has made 378. So it's in between the two. Mm. So technically, I mean, I kept reading all these articles and I, I texted you this sort of conundrum where I took a screenshot when I when I Googled Mission Impossible box office. Yeah. Where half the articles that came up were like, Mission Impossible is a flop. <laughs> and it's one of the worst openings in all of Mission Impossible history. And then other articles were like, such a like Mission Impossible is making so much money. It's crossing yeah. so much worldwide. So that aside, it's made in the middle between Barbie and Oppenheimer. And it came out just a few days earlier. Yeah, I don't think I mean, I'm sure everyone expected like the Tom Cruise $1 billion thing, but um, yeah. it's still making a lot of money. It is, but right? the, thing, the thing with, with Oppenheimer is Oppenheimer then took over the IMAX screens. Yeah. Which was not, I guess, smart on Paramount's part to, to release Mission Impossible before another movie was going to take over IMAX screens because you want Mission to be in IMAX, right? But then, yeah, like, on the other hand, they couldn't have predicted Barbenheimer. It's that no. would that's impossible. That's humans being really weird. <laughs> well, you bring up a good point because 
can this phenomenon of Barbenheimer be recreated in a sense of like a counter-programming down the road? Let's just say there is a, uh, I can't even think of it off the top of my head, just like the happiest movie you can think of being released with something completely opposite in the future. Like, do you think we can ever get a Barbenheimer level weekend again? I, I think the studios will absolutely try now but it will feel forced. Yeah. So studios will talk to other studios. Like, for instance, is there going to be like another Conjuring counter program to like a Ninja Turtles movie? That wouldn't even be it. That's not even it. Barbie and Oppenheimer are so perfect. They're perfect. It's again, I think they're going to try and they're going to embarrass themselves, but they will try. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's just it was such an organic thing. Yeah. Man, and the the worst part is that it's set to the backdrop of the writer's strike and the yeah. actor's strike. And it's just, it's like so depressing and then so happy. I wish you could enjoy it a little more. Yeah. For sure. Was there anything on the, the writing process, the Greta Gerwig? Yeah, because I, I was really taken by an article that came out that I couldn't refine. So I apologize. I believe it was from The Hollywood Reporter. But... Greta talks about how, of course, this is a Mattel movie. Mattel plays a big part in the movie, actually. And it's these kinds of movies that are based on this kind of IP, particularly an IP that doesn't have a story. You know, I, I was once brought in to pitch on a Candyland movie. Like, there's no story in Candyland, right? Yeah. So these are these are purely marketing tools when they become IP for screenwriters. So when Greta Gerwig took the job, It was meant to be a simple marketing tool. But she said that, A, she's not going to just write a marketing movie to sell Barbies. Like, she's going to make a movie that means something to her. And her quote was something along the lines of, it can do both. Like, Mm -hmm. it can be an amazing marketing tool to sell toys, but it can also have purpose. It can also be a movie that moves you. And those two things, she doesn't feel like... Um, are oil and water. They can absolutely go together. And that was really interesting to me as a writer because, again, we talk a lot about selling out as a writer and what does that mean. And she even said that in her interview that this could have been the end of her career if she had done it wrong. Yeah. But, of course, she's one of the highest grossing directors now of all time <laughs> because, yeah, it absolutely could just be something cheap that you don't care about. And and it's largely because that's what studio executives and Mattel executives are trying to make you do, right? Because to them, the risk for them, talking about risk in this business, is if you alienate millions of people with your movie, suddenly you're not selling any Barbie toys. <laughs> you're, you're, you're going backwards. You're, you're selling less Barbie toys. Yeah. And that's not the object, objective of doing a Barbie movie. And you can't take back a Barbie movie. It's out there for the world to see no matter what. And it can completely ruin your brand. So right. it is definitely a huge risk for them. But it was just a good lesson as a writer to remember that you absolutely can do both. You can pay homage to the business that we're in, but also do something meaningful for you. Yeah. Also, really good point, because sometimes if you get, you know, if you have to pitch on something and let's just take Candyland, for example, I feel like our brains naturally go to candy, Candyland, like playing this game. Whereas maybe you approach it as like a like a place that is just like that you go to as an escape and you go there and you start like leading your or leaving your other real world. And it's like this mm-hmm. other meaning for like life is better I don't know where the hell I was going with that, but my point being is there could be depth to a Candyland story. Yeah. If you find the meaning you, in it. If you, if you find, find the meaning of it. Wow, that was a yeah, horrible absolutely. ramble. Absolutely. 
No, it wasn't at all. And that's the thing. When I pitched my candy, I like my Candyland version. It was a film noir, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. But I, at the time in my career, I was very much trying to pitch the thing that would get me the job. Yeah. Versus the thing that I cared about. And it was just because that's, I hadn't yet learned that the thing you care about will make it good enough for them to want to pay you to, to do that job. Yeah. Um, so I, I went at it like, what can I do that is totally unexpected in the world of Candyland versus what does Candyland make me feel? Like yeah. how, when I played it as a kid, what did it mean to me? And how can I take those feelings and turn them into a story that people can empathize with and feel um, or it's relevant and relatable. I, I didn't do the thing you're saying, basically, and I, I never got the job. Um, but that is absolutely how you should approach every single piece of IP, even though it seems ridiculous. Like no, Candyland. <laughs> no, it does. I remember, like, yeah, Can- Candyland, Battleship, things like that. But it is. It's true. You just have to find the meaning behind it so you can have something to anchor on and say, okay, you know, Candyland's like Neverland. You know, it's this place where you never grow up, but you have to get mm-hmm. out of this place at some point because that's not real. You know, like, and yeah. come come at it. I could see Barbie kind of did that. It opened up a little bit of a different perspective on, on how to look at IP, I think. I think so. I think, and not to be extreme, but the way that Spider-Verse made everyone go, oh, you can do something different with animation and animation can bring in adult audiences. It was just sort of this huge turning point in terms of the animated space. It feels like Barbie is hopefully maybe a big turning point in terms of IP and the mm-hmm. way maybe maybe execs now studios will be more willing to risk the storytelling when it comes yeah. to these IPs. And why I like it, you know, is that it does allow an artist to make an IP their own mm-hmm. as opposed to just saying, hey, this is a Barbie movie. We need to sell Barbies. So I, I, I'm hopeful, my famous last words here, like I'm hopeful that it'll almost like usher in more of an artistic mm-hmm. um, IP generation. I think that would be great. I mean, the amount of risks they took for that movie is is pretty pretty insane and it paid off so more more of that and yeah i mean it'd be so fun to see these really great artists come in and take these ips into really bizarre places oh my god that would be dude if you could just like make like i'm gonna make contra and it's just some kind of like oh my god <laughs> could someone hire me to do contra please <laughs> so it's a story about friendship it's an action comedy <laughs> I'm all in. It's all about brotherhood. Family. Family. Oh, my God. Contra meets Fast and Furious. Oh, God. I mean, that's an obvious. Yeah. Um, Pay me money. And then, by the way, just thinking about writing process, uh, a lot of Chris Nolan's stuff has been coming out as well in, in, in prep for, for Oppenheimer. And um, everyone probably already knows this already, but how he wrote the Oppenheimer script in first person, which... Yeah. No one has really ever seen. It shocked all of the actors that he sent it to. Um, I'm trying to get a hold of the script still to, to see if I can read what the hell that that feels like. But, you know, he when Oppenheimer would walk across a room, it would be like, I walk across the room rather than he. And Nolan says he felt he needed to do that because it allowed him to write in a way that he wasn't passing judgment on Oppenheimer. Mm. At least that's how he hoped it would come off, that... It was just you're experiencing a man's experience versus if you're writing he walks across the room, the way you describe the way he walks across the room is going to pass judgment on the way he's walking across the room. 
just automatically from that perspective. So it's super interesting. Wow. I bet now we're going to see a bunch of scripts in first person. Um, But uh, yeah. Nolan is really talented. I know. He's so talented. (laughs) And I love what, like, I really have been reflecting on is how, how he decided to do this movie. It wasn't like, hey, the world needs an Oppenheimer movie. Or, hey, there's a job that I need to get. Or, hey, I need to pay my mortgage. I'm going to desperately write something. It was, I mean, he's definitely in a privileged position where he can just choose what he wants to work on. But for him, he said that he knew, knew nothing about Oppenheimer and like knew a couple quotes, as I think we all do just studying history. And then after Tenet, Robert Pattinson gifted Nolan a book of quotes from Oppenheimer. And that was what got his brain starting of this man is really interesting. I need to find out more about this man. And then a biography came out, a book, and he devoured it and was like, yes, I want to make this book into a movie. But his... Nolan's IMDb is nuts, right? Interstellar and Tenet and Dark Knight and Oppenheimer, Dunkirk. Like he's all over the map in terms of subject matter, in terms of genre. And it's a career to look at because he picks what he's passionate about. Like we were just saying, it's you pick the story that you feel like you need to tell. And I wish I was more of that kind of writer, I guess. I would just want to say that I love stories like you just told about Robert Pattinson, where you hear like just some random person. I mean, I know he's not a random person, but you, you know, you get a gift, which sounds like a very thoughtful gift, by the way. That's not some yeah. random, like, oh, I got you like a words to live by. It's like here, this here's a Robert Oppenheimer, <laughs> a uh, calendar with a new a dictionary word. <laughs> yeah, it's so. I love stories like that, but yeah, me too. Barbenheimer happened. It destroyed it. It's still destroying it. Mission Impossible. Still awesome. Go see it. There's probably only two two uh, showings in your theater right now. So see it before it goes out of theater. Oh, it's so sad. It's such a such a fun movie. Yeah. Well, we'll check in, do another check-in at the end of the summer to see what other movies have blown us away. Um, but I guess, last question, Josh, what other movies have you seen this summer that have been exciting to you? I finally saw Indiana Jones. Okay. Well, I mean, I have saw it, obviously, since we last chatted, and I really liked it. Okay, good. I liked it more than what people were, the way people were talking about it. The way I was talking about it? The way that you were talking about it. <laughs> and that's the one thing that's coming to mind right now for some odd reason. I can't think of anything else. What other I movies are there? I saw Haunted Mansion last night. Oh. The Disney movie based on the ride. Oh, I didn't realize that came out yesterday. Yeah. Um, it's... Very fun. I would say Paul fell asleep. Oh, that sounds exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little long and, and it gets a it gets a bit cheesy towards the end, but it was super fun. And I saw Joyride. Mm, I'm seeing that tonight. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. I have thoughts, but it's pretty great. Okay. Is it one of those movies that you're sad that it went under the radar? Or do you understand why? I think I understand why. We can talk about it once you see it. I wish okay. it had pushed. There's there's something off with it that okay. I have thoughts on, but I don't want to ruin your experience. So Great. Yeah, I'm going to see Joyride. I want to see Haunted Mansion. and um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is coming out next for I'll us. Definitely be seeing and that. And we already have our tickets, and we're doing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle-themed workout, and I'm probably going to wear some kind of Michelangelo outfit. I don't know. 
Yeah. I'm excited. See, th- you. this is why we need movies. This is it. <laughs> it brings so much joy. I it love does. it so much. All right. Quote of the day? Freaking quote of the day. All good ideas start out as bad ideas. That's why it takes so long. Steven Spielberg. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram and Threads, or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. You can find me on Instagram as Josh Hallman and on X. Oh shit! <laughs> oh, God, as Ugh. Joshua Hallman. And as know, always, <laughs> the Act Two Podcast is a production of Act Two, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. <laughs> <laughs>